Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatrics Newsletter Audiocast. I am your host, Dr. M, and today we're going to be looking at Volume 12, Letter 9, which corresponds with update number 55. Let's start with some free thoughts. Moving on is hard, but vitally necessary for growth. This remains true for COVID as it does for any tough situation that a society will go through. I read with sadness a media piece discussing the amount of personal fear that is residual in our society from Omicron and just COVID in general. A disturbing example was a physician who is fully vaccinated without major risk factors planning to keep herself and her family masked up and socially distanced for the foreseeable future, despite a mortality risk of 0.000033 for herself and even lower for her children. The damage done by the fear induced by media profoundly pounding people's mental and physical self with thoughts of death and destruction from a virus that for most of us is a mild annoyance is unfortunately a big problem. That is not to say this pandemic has not been bad for many because it has. But the reality is once vaccinated, your risk is very, 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 very low. We need to keep things all in perspective. Moving on is hard but so necessary for a healthy existence. Okay, coronavirus update number 55. Before I get started, I want to ask a big favor. If you do listen to the podcast, please do me a favor and go to Apple Podcasts and give me a rating. It helps me understand if I'm on the right track or not. Okay, as this Omicron wave comes back to earth, I'm going to shift gears and spend a little more time looking at secondary problems of the pandemic and now endemic disease state that is sars 2 cov 19 This issue was written on February 14th, so understand that for timeliness of what you're reading or listening to, excuse me. This week in specific, we're going to take a closer look at long COVID. Many countries around the world are removing all COVID restrictions in favor of an endemic status. Many U.S. states, including northern states, that would not be expected to have removed or will remove their mask mandates in favor of more social freedoms. This is likely either a capitulation to Omicron's infectiousness being unstoppable or political realities that the U.S. citizenry no longer wish to follow these rules anymore. These are not surprising realities. The data is showing us that we are in a much better place from a death and risk perspective despite massive case volume. Because we have so much viral volume and enough at-risk unvaccinated individuals in America, death numbers are higher, but not proportionally to the massive case volume. The big problem remains that we are a country of that are much sicker at baseline and with inflammatory age-related diseases and less vaccinated, leaving us a much greater risk for negative outcomes. The data comparing the U.S. to Europe shows a stark difference in death risk. The world around masking, testing, and quarantine needs to leave the Alpha, Beta, Delta protocol world and enter the Omicron endemic status. The actions of the federal government now shipping out N95 masks two years into a pandemic is akin to masking while you walk into a restaurant but remaining unmasked while seated. It's more political theater doesn't make much sense scientifically. We should have had masks given out at N95 status at the beginning of the pandemic or even a year in when we had them. There's no change still that your risk of death is pretty much almost zero if you've been vaccinated. Omicron is 91% less risky than Delta. However, 9% residual risk in 100 million unvaccinated people with risk factors is not insignificant. As we saw in January, large volume of hospitalized patients, despite being proportionally less than with Delta. North Carolina has turned the corner of this huge first wave, which is a blessing. The seven-day moving average as of February 14th was 
down to 200,000 from 800,000, showing the incredible burn rate of Omicron. If you had two doses of the mRNA vaccine and a previous natural infection, you're very, very, very small risk of any significant hospitalization, therefore death from the Delta or Omicron variant based on statistics overall. However, you're likely to get some illness from Omicron now as it has escaped the two-dose series of mRNA vaccines and others as boosters as well. So for me, if my risk of death is 0.000033 once vaccinated with a two-dose series or survived natural infection coupled to the fact that we have vaccines that are no longer effectively preventing against transmission, what are we talking about then? Why are we talking about boosters? What is the big deal now? Are we not at a really good place in this pandemic? These are interesting questions to ponder. As it stands on February 14th, there are 77 million known cases and 910,000 deaths. The case numbers probably way underestimate true numbers by three to four X or more because of so many home kits now being used to diagnose and those are not being reported. So the questions from before, do you think that children should wear a mask in school now based on Omicron's data stream? Only 22% said yes. Next question was, should mental health be a top priority for the state and local governments? And therefore, 93% said yes. I personally fall in line with a no and yes response. I think that children are not the risk pool. Most masks are minimally useful unless they are well-fitted N95s and stay on, which most kids won't wear because of the significant stress and won't wear effectively. And children, frankly, are not the problem and need normal experiences now to thrive mentally. Mental health is my top priority next to nutritional health for kids, hence no mask wearing unless something dramatically changes in the future with a variant. Teachers and at-risk individuals should be the ones wearing a well-fitted N95 mask from now on. I wear mine in my office. All doctors and providers of healthcare are wearing them when they're around possible cases, so this should be the new norm. There should be no selected groups that are able to not wear masks in order to make everyone else suffer the burden or whatever the cause or thought process may be. As someone who's been wearing masks at work for a long, long time, the burden is real, but it is what we do for safety. As an adult, this makes sense to me, but children are not the issue, therefore should not bury the brunt of, uh, carry the brunt of the burden. On the podcast, uh, we released the Ashley Merriman podcast, which is fantastic. As the co-author of the top-selling book, Nurture Shock, we get into a very deep dive into two of the chapters of the 10. We're going to get back to a couple of the other chapters moving forward, but I highly, highly encourage you to listen to it. She is an excellent speaker and her research uh, into the world of, of children's parenting and health is, is just excellent. Excellent, excellent. All right. Let's go to Omicron overview this week. So for me, the Omicron variant finally caught up to me in a consciously unboosted state. It was a kitty cat compared to my first brush with COVID back in March of 2020. The first time I was sick lasted eight days with mild myocarditis and with a month of fatigue. It was frankly very rough. Round two was a two-day illness with flu-like symptoms of body aches and fever and fatigue with minimal secondary continuance. Thus, for me, the memory T and B cells from round one plus my mRNA vaccine dose a year later made a huge difference considering how well Omicron evaded the immune antibodies circulating, of which I had a lot based on testing in October, nine months after my original vaccinations. Again, I tell you this only as is my story and how I perceived the literature and I made my decisions. Each person must decide their path based on their risk and their understandings. I will continue to present the data for you all to use in every decision moving forward. 
For me, now I know I have an excellent antibody responsiveness to all parts of the Omicron virome because of natural infection response versus just a spike protein exposure of the vaccine. This will also generate many iterations of antibodies with slight mutations to Omicron itself with anticipation of Omicron's mutations down the road. The beautiful system of natural immunity has taken place and I should have excellent immunity moving forward. Now comes a question of for how long and to what level. How long will it take for Omicron or another variant to reinfect me? I have no idea. The previous high mark for antibody duration systemically was around three to five months after vaccination based on study data. My initial, my initial situation was March of 2020, followed by mRNA vaccination, January of 2021, antibody testing in October of 2021 was very high with levels. And then I had a mild Omicron infection in February of 2022. So let's see what my antibodies look like this summer and next or this coming winter. I'll check them and I'll keep you posted. Uh, experimentation in progress for me. So where are we going? Let's be honest. We have zero clue. We have no idea where things will go. Anyone who tells you they have an idea of where things are going is just making it up as we know they are. The hope is that we are past the phase of more severe disease-based mutations like Delta. This is likely, but never set in stone. History has shown that movements towards an Omicron level are more common, i.e. a more infectious disease, but not more deadly. However, getting more infectious is going to be tricky as there is not very far to go as only varicella and measles are historically more contagious than this Omicron variant. But nature will play out as nature decides. We will just plan to react in kind. All of the writers that espouse modeling control over predictive outcomes have been humbled by COVID like they have never been before. Nature is essentially uncontrollable. We are in the throes of Darwinian Lamarckian resolutions. By that I mean that if you are genetically weak, for viral surveillance and killing because of a genetic mutation at birth or lifestyle-based epigenetic weaknesses, then you are likely gone, which is Darwinian survival of the fittest, as tragic as it is. The gene that was responsible for the demise no longer circulates. The survivors, on the other hand, will undoubtedly begin developing epigenetic changes that provide a survival advantage over time, which is Lamarckian and in line with human evolution in the face of an obstacle. It is truly fascinating, albeit morbid, in a scientific way to watch a real-time survival event play out in rapid sequence. I hope that we never do this again, but the, the science remains what it is for me. Fascinating. My initial thought had been that a globally utilized novel vaccine directed against multiple parts of Omicron is likely to be very important over time to reduce the ability of SARS-2 virus to infect and replicate at the current r naught, leading to more tricky mutagenesis. This may not be true, as a new study in Moderna's vaccine shows. We are not out of the woods yet, folks. The world needs to have immunity at some level. Natural Omicron really helped us get closer to this goal. But more vaccination globally can only help those who are unvaccinated and not infected yet. It appears that continuing to use the current vaccines in use makes the most sense. We need to maintain a sharp focus as a culture on inflammation-reducing lifestyle choices to aid our long-term survival. The powers that need, or excuse me, the powers that be need to push a stronger narrative around healthy living through education. These issues should be straightforward. Education with a love bend. This is not a time for the policymakers to act as if they know what is best for us. More that we could all benefit by making these choices for our collective health. We need Congress to subsidize healthy food over processed junk that is occurring now. Be prepared to vaccinate if you are at risk moving forward pending changes in the global COVID battle. 
Now that we are past the opinion COVID letter from a couple weeks ago, let us get back to the business of just literature review. This week is a heavy focus on long COVID or post-acute chronic COVID syndrome. The next COVID update will focus primarily on mental health. Quick hits number one. Quote, post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, otherwise known as PASC, represent an emerging global crisis. However, quantifiable risk factors for PASC and their biological associations are poorly resolved. We executed a deep multi-omic longitudinal investigation of 309 COVID-19 patients from initial diagnosed convalescence two to three months later. Integrated with clinical data and patient-reported symptoms, we resolved four PASC-anticipating risk factors at the time of initial COVID-19 diagnosis. Type 2 diabetes, SARS-CoV-2 RNAemia, Epstein-Barr virus viremia, and specific autoantibodies. In patients with gastrointestinal PASC, SARS-CoV-2-specific and CMV-specific CD8-positive T-cells exhibited unique dynamics during recovery from COVID-19. Analysis of symptom-associated immunological signatures revealed coordinated immunity polarization into four endotypes exhibiting divergent acute severity and PASC. We find that immunological associations between PSC factors diminish over time, leading to distinct convalescent immune states. Detectability of most PASC factors at COVID-19 diagnosis emphasizes the importance of early disease measurements for understanding emergent chronic conditions and suggests PASC treatment strategies. This comes to us from Sue S.U. et al. 2022 in Cell. In English, this study basically says that long COVID is associated with dysfunctional immune polarization due to antecedent risk factors, including chronic hyperglycemia and autoimmune T-cell polarity. These issues are known to be related to intestinal dysbiosis, poor nutrition, and overuse of medicines, including antibiotics and antacids. Dysbiosis was also noted by Dr. Fasano in children with multi-inflammatory syndrome. The children with difficult delayed disease also had systemic viral proteinemia, which is a hallmark of intestinal permeability. We could do a whole podcast on this topic alone. Oh, right. We're going to do that in two weeks with Dr. Fasano. So excited to take a deep dive with him here. The autoantibody theory is also well studied as we have seen over the pandemic. Individuals with autoantibodies against immune surveillance mechanisms have higher viral loads, worse disease, and longer time to recovery. Men are the most affected demographically. Number two, long COVID remains a study of human lifestyle choices that drive dysfunction with the intestinal microbiome. Quote, at six months, 76% of patients with PACS and the most common symptoms were fatigue, poor memory, and hair loss. Gut microbiota composition at admission was associated with occurrence of PACS. Patients with PACS showed recovered gut microbiome profile at six months comparable to those non-COVID controls. Gut microbiome of patients with PACS were characterized by higher levels of Ruminococcus gnavus, Bacteroides vulgatus, and lower levels of Facobacterium prosnitzi. Persistent respiratory symptoms were correlated with opportunistic gut pathogens and neuropsychiatric symptoms, and fatigue were correlated with nosocomial gut pathogens, including Clostridium inocum and Actinomyces naslundi. Butyrate-producing bacteria, including Bifidobacterium pseudocanulatum and Facobacterium prosnitzi, showed the largest inverse correlation with PASC at six months, end quote. Liu et al., 2022, in gut, L-I-U. So for me, the take-home here is low levels of F. prosnitzi 
are also associated with inflammatory bowel disease. So we're still learning a lot about the risks of modern American intestinal dysbiosis, bacterial balance in the gut, and disease risk. But there clearly are some keystone species that we need to preserve to prevent negative outcomes. High-fiber diets are the key to health in the gut. Number three, long COVID. Of 9,751 patients, 5,266 or 54% were male. 30 of the 45 studies reported mean and median ages of younger than 60 years. Among 16 studies, most of which comprised participants who were previously hospitalized, the median proportion of individuals experiencing at least one persistent symptom was 73%. Individual symptoms occurring most frequently included shortness of breath or dyspnea at 36%, fatigue or exhaustion at 40%, and sleep disorders at 30%. This comes to us from Nasiri et al. in JAMA Network, N-A-S-S-E-R-I-E. So for me, that male predominance is interesting and aligned with higher frequency autoimmune antibodies to gamma interferon and lower testosterone levels being associated with increased risk for men with worse COVID disease than women. The more robust the inflammatory response, the more cellular damage follows increasing the risk of autoimmune antibody production, which is likely tied to COVID chronic disease, otherwise known as PACS. Number four, long COVID is much less likely in the previously vaccinated. New studies showed 50 plus percent reduction in long COVID PASC symptoms, PCS symptoms in those individuals who had two doses of the vaccine prior to becoming infected. That comes to us from Kuodi, K-U-O-D-I et al. Once natural infection in an unvaccinated person and without PACS symptoms, the risk of PACS is likely equally low with subsequent infections. However, we are playing Russian roulette every time we enter a COVID frame in an unvaccinated state. This data really only met is now for the unvaccinated population. Number five, MISC, multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, is associated with poor intestinal function from a microbiome perspective. Research from the lab of Dr. Alessio Fasano has shown direct evidence of intestinal permeability or leaky gut in children with MISC. They looked at 100 kids, 19 with MISC, 26 with COVID-19, and 55 controls. Analyzed the stool for SARS-2 COVID PCR presence. Analyzed blood for zonulin and other chemicals that indicate intestinal mucosal breakdown. They further analyzed the blood for spike protein as well as other markers of immune inflammatory response, which are elevated in hallmark cases of MISC. His paper notes that there is an increasing knowledge that the intestine serves as ground zero for SARS-2 COVID disease in adults, and that in severe cases, microbial, dis- microbial dysbiosis, otherwise known as abnormal microbial or gut bacteria balance, and the disruption of the gastrointestinal barrier drive inflammatory activation. MISC in children is delayed for weeks after infection when the virus is no longer found in the nose, res- nose or respiratory tract, making the source of the virus a different replication location. They showed that weeks after initial infection, they could isolate the RNA for SARS-2 in the intestine. There, the virus causes intestinal inflammation and permeability, leading to spike protein leak into the bloodstream, triggering the inflammatory response, leading to system-wide damage. Most therapies, including steroids and IVIG, intravenous immune globulin or pooled antibodies, are not clearing the spike protein from the blood pointing to the inability of current therapies to address the virus at the gut level as they are only addressing the downstream inflammation, not the upstream generator of this inflammation. 
In the study, one child was 17 months old, was given a drug lorazotide, a new zonulin antagonist in investigational therapy used in the treatment of zonulin to block zonulin peptide that has increased the tight junction damage or permeability. They were looking for a reduction in spike protein in the blood and a corresponding inflammatory reduction, and they noted that to have occurred. This comes to us from Yonker, Y-O-N-K-E-R et al. in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. So if you remember from last spring when we talked about the work of Dr. Ed Behrens and the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia regarding multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, it appears to be the case that certain individuals have genetic mutations putting them at risk for immune dysregulation, whereby a chemokine, CXCL9, the response to gamma interferon after being infected with SARS-2 is upregulated due to missing repressor genes that stop the protein from producing itself and this inflammatory cascade. This leads to elevated immune activation, very reminiscent of macrophage activation, macrophage activation syndrome. In other words, many children will respond to SARS-2 with normal and appropriate gamma interferon proteins to attack the kill and kill the virus. The CXCL9 is one signaling molecule in this process that recruits white blood cells to, the enter, to enter the fray and fight SARS-2. When the virus is killed, there are repressor genes and proteins that are called in to stop the whole inflammatory process. Think of water on fire. This is the normal state for 99.99% of our kids. The rare child with a genetic mutation can't shut off this process, leading to all the other inflammatory sequelae that we see of in COVID-19. So if we unpack all of this from Dr. Fasano's excellent research, one, it is clear that this is a disease occurring in individuals with prior comorbidities, putting them at risk from baseline inflammation. So these are the folks that are likely to need vaccination even when they're young, as opposed to all the general population of children. There's genetic predisposition in some individuals to missing this gene that suppresses the inflammatory response once it starts. Dysbiosis or poor bacterial intestinal bacterial balance is a key risk factor for MISE, and dysbiosis is caused by chronically poor chosen lifestyle decisions, especially diet, antibiotic exposure, and exercise. What we cannot do is change our genetic risk factors for a negative outcome, but we can absolutely change our decisions that promote dysbiosis and chronic health decay over time. So for me, yet again, we see data pointing to our personal control of our health outcomes. We can, as parents, make the following decisions to reduce our risk of MISC for our children. Number one, no matter what has happened in the past, clean up your child's diet by switching to an anti-inflammatory diet or a Whole30 diet or a no-processed, whole-food, predominantly fruit and vegetable matter diet. A highly processed modern diet loaded with flour, sugar, and dairy and bad fats is the most important antecedent trigger in my mind for dysbiosis and intestinal permeability supported by the research. If you plan to have a child soon, breastfeed your, this is number two, breastfeed your infant from birth and practice healthy weight gain during pregnancy to set the stage for a child's healthy microbiome. The pre-pregnant time before you want to conceive is the perfect time to practice an anti-inflammatory diet and get it grooved in. Get adequate sleep based on age requirements. For most kids, that's around 8 to 10 hours nightly. This will help reduce sleep-deprived immune activation. Number four, practice chemical and toxin avoidance by avoiding the consumption of unnecessary drugs that affect the gut, including antacids, antibiotics, non-steroidal medicines like ibuprofen. These medicines will negatively affect intestinal microbial flora balance, promoting dysbiosis. 
Number five, practice mental health stress reduction through prayer, meditation, art therapy, counseling, and more. Number six, exercise and move often stimulating gut motility and evacuation, which prevents constipation and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Number seven, avoid dairy and gluten as a food source if you suffer long COVID or MECFS. These two food antigens trigger the most cellular damage intestinally in susceptible humans, leading to increased low-level inflammation and immune dysregulation. See Dr. Rowe's podcast on MECFS for more on this topic. Okay, quick hits number six. Quote, of the 452 eligible patients, 301 or 67% of these patients could be included. 246 or 82% of these patients, mean age roughly around 61 years, completed a one-year follow-up questionnaire. A one year after ICU treatment for COVID-19, physical symptoms were reported in 74% of those patients, and they had mental symptoms, were reported at 26%. Cognitive symptoms were reported at 16%, which is, you know, thinking, processing, versus mental symptoms, which would be more your anxiety, depression. The most frequently reported new physical problems were weakened condition, joint stiffness, joint pain, weakness of the muscles, and myalgia. And those are all roughly somewhere in the 20% range. End quote. This comes to us from Heesakers, H-E-E-S-A-K-K-E-R-S et al., 2022. Long COVID is clearly a debilitating and persistent problem that will become a large personal health care burden moving forward. That's my take on what this data tells us. Number seven. World Health Organization breaks with the U.S. CDC by stating that booster vaccines for young people are unnecessary based on the science to date. The logic for young people is clear. The CDC is recommending boosters purely in an attempt to slow the spread of the Omicron variant. Unfortunately, there's zero evidence that this is actually what's happening to a useful degree for any age. Boosters, N95 masks, and other mitigation measures make complete sense for the at-risk groups as discussed many times to date based on the current situations. Outside of that, I'm with the WHO on this one. Number eight, New York Times. When discussing why Denmark has removed COVID restrictions, we have, quote, we based it upon really precise picture of the development of the epidemic and what we saw with the Omicron variant taking over in our country. Overall, the Omicron variant is less severe. So even though we see really high case counts, we don't have to flatten the curve like we used to simply because we don't see a severe picture of hospitalizations with Delta, for instance. When we look deeper into the numbers of hospitalizations, what we see is that we have a low and stable number of admissions to the intensive care unit. Yesterday, I think we had 26 admissions to the ICU, which is really low given that we had 55,000 new cases. End quote. New York Times COVID newsletter from 2322. Keep in mind that Denmark has a healthier population and better vaccination status than we do, making their decision vastly easier than ours. They have 81% vaccination versus our 64%. Number nine, new variant BA.2 appears to be very similar to Omicron, but possibly even more infectious by 1% to 5%. No data that it is more deadly to date. It may cause an extension of BA.1 Omicron wave. That remains to be seen, but appears unlikely based on current numbers. Number 10, quote, in this cross-sectional assessment of 816 unvaccinated healthy adults, mean age of 48, recruited on social media, researchers assessed antibody status arising from SARS-CoV-2 infection rather than from vaccination. Participants were categorized as follows. With 250 to 300 people in each group, there was test-confirmed COVID-19, 
There was second group was belief that they had been infected, but no testing or three belief that they had never been infected and no testing. Participants were tested for spike protein receptor binding domains, anti-RBD, with a commercially available test. Anti-RBD antibodies were found in 99% of the COVID-confirmed people that were tested positive, 55% of the COVID-unconfirmed people but thought they were sick, and 11% of the folks who didn't think they were sick and never got tested. In the COVID-confirmed group, medium time since diagnosis was nine months, as long as 20 months, end quote, Schwenk et al., 2022, So for me, the study shows us that large number of people that have antibodies against COVID despite never testing positive for it. So as expected, lots and lots of people have had COVID, even though they weren't tested or known to be positive. Number 11, in a very small study, a group of researchers found no viral SARS-2 particles in breast milk of symptomatic and infected mothers. That's a ReachMD article you can find in the newsletter. Number 12, as North Carolina's data from ICU use and use of ventilators can be found at NCDHHS, link in the newsletter, the numbers remain much lower than Delta's peak despite massive case volume and are trending flat to down. 13, quote, SARS-CoV-2 Omicron is highly transmissible and has substantial resistance to antibody neutralization following immunization with ancestral spike-matched vaccines. It is unclear whether boosting with Omicron-specific vaccines would enhance immunity and protection. Here, non-human primates that received mRNA-12738 at week 0 and 4 were boosted at week 41 with an mRNA-1273 or mRNA Omicron. The neutralizing antibody titers against D614G were 4760 or 270 reciprocal, ID50 at week 6 peak and week 41 pre-boost, respectively, and 320 and 110 for Omicron. So two weeks after boost, titers against D614G and Omicron increased to 5360 and 2980, respectively, for the mRNA-1273 and 260, excuse me, 26701930 for the mRNA Omicron vaccine. Following either boost, 70 to 80% of the spike-specific B cells were cross-reactive against both WA1, which is the ancestral strain, and Omicron. Significant and equivalent control of virus replication in lower airways was observed following either boost. Therefore, an Omicron boost may not provide greater immunity of protection compared to a boost with just our current mRNA-1273 vaccine. End quote. This comes to us from Gagne, G-A-G-N-E et al. 2022. So this data set is really surprising for me. I would have predicted the opposite. Such is the world of science. Hold your beliefs loosely, folks. What this data set says to me is in the context of everything we have discussed to date, one, boosting with mRNA vaccines should be absolutely encouraged for those at high risk and vulnerable people. Two, the rest of us should choose based on our personal fear and lifestyle to boost or get natural disease. And you know what I chose. Three, unless this data set is different when looked at in humans, a Omicron-specific vaccine has just lost steam for me. Four, the timing of boosting from at-risk individuals is likely to be biannual for a significant level of protection. However, this has to be settled still, as I don't think it is settled. This is my scientific hypothesis. In the newsletter, there are some reposts of a lot of great data about Omicron being 91% less deadly than Delta. Some work, again, about risk of dying at 0.00033. Discussions on vaccination and how much time in between, and also new data on on dosing uh, regimen for the vaccination with mRNA vaccines. 
and then another opinion on masking in kids. But you can read that all in the newsletter if you want, and I'm not going to go through that one today. Finally, in section two, vitamin D and COVID. From the study, we noted 1,176 patients admitted to the hospital. 253 had records of their vitamin D level prior to COVID-19 infection. A lower vitamin D status was more common in patients with severe critical disease at less than 20 nanograms per milliliter than in individuals with mild or moderate disease. Patients with vitamin D deficiency, this less than 20 nanograms per milliliter, were 14 times more likely to have severe COVID or critical disease than patients with 25, I mean, excuse me, with vitamin D levels at greater than 40 nanograms per milliliter. And most integrative and functional medicine doctors would like you to be in the 50, 60, 70, 80 range. There have been multiple studies that have shown a correlation between vitamin D deficiency and worse SARS-2 COVID-19 outcomes. This is not causation, although there are immune mechanisms that may call, be causation probable. The bottom line is that people with obesity and metabolic syndrome have low vitamin D levels in general, making the cause likely, which drives metabolic disease. It is well known that obesity is associated with low vitamin D levels, which is partly due to fat cells sequestering the fat-loving vitamin D from circulation. You can read that in DROR, DROR, PLOS1, PLOS1 journal. As always, section three has the COVID pathophysiology update if you want to read the whole thing. And you can also uh, go to the podcast for a recent discussion on milk and health, as well as multi-inflammatory syndrome, where we do a journal club style interview with uh, Andrew Brackens, third year medical student, and Zachary Strong, a family nurse practitioner. It's a super fun way to do a new deep dive into articles for everyone to understand. So that's it, folks. That's the end of our discussion on issue number nine, volume 12, corresponding with coronavirus update number 55. As always, hug those kids. And the disclaimer says that information provided in this podcast slash newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.